Hi, thank you for joining us today. This is Ellen Lust. I'm at the Program on Governance and Local Development at the University of Gothenburg. And I'm pleased to have with me today Ian Shapiro, who is the Sterling Professor of Political Science at Yale University and the director at the Luce Center there. So welcome, Ian. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, so you and Francis Rosenbluth have just written, a, I think, a really fascinating and interesting book called Responsible Parties, uh, Saving Democracy from Itself, and it's published by Yale University Press. Um, so I wanted to invite you today to join us and tell us a little bit about the book and the argument that you're making there. I'd like to start by, by noting the premise and the starting point is the extent to which people are increasingly dissatisfied with the political system, with the um, sort of the choices they have in front of them, and that kind of general dissatisfaction. Um, and invite you to explain to us what you see as the crux of the problem. Sure. So we've seen in virtually all democracies over the last several decades an increase in alienation from politics, from political institutions, from political parties. Um, and there are many reasons for that. Some have nothing to do with political systems. They have to do with wage stagnation in the many of the advanced democracies where wages have either been flat or falling for large sectors of the population at the same time as the the wealthiest groups have, have improved their circumstances, so inequality has grown. There have been very unpopular wars um, that have uh, driven up deficits. There have been refugee crises that have created a lot of uh, turmoil. Um, so there are many sources of, of voter uh, anguish and alienation. But what we argue in this book is there's an additional source which is really internal to political systems, and that has been that voters have insisted on more direct control of decisions of politicians and of political parties. And this gives them the illusion of greater control, but it in fact has the, the unintended effect of making it more difficult for political parties to actually govern and to deliver the kinds of policies that are in voters' interests. And so paradoxically, uh, the reforms that voters demand actually increase their alienation from politics and then breed demands for even more reforms of the decentralizing kind that uh, produce a, a self-destructive cycle. And so we have seen demands for um, primaries in uh, political systems. We have seen demands for greater use of direct democracy through uh, plebiscites, referendums, ballot initiatives. We have seen a push to move to open list systems in PR where people can pick their own representative. We have seen demands, say, in the U.S. for majority-minority districts to get more representation, so-called descriptive representation of different groups. Uh, we have seen more demands for the direct election of leaders of parties by memberships or control of um, um, coalition agreements by memberships, as in uh, the recent German uh, elections. And all of these reforms have a nice democratic ring to them because it seems to be giving more power to the people. Um, but when we have demands for more power to the people, we should always ask which people. 
And what tends to happen is that those who exercise um, direct democracy tend not to be representative of most voters. They tend to be people on the extremes of parties, activists uh, who then hijack political agendas, as with the Tea Party in the U.S., uh, and take control of political parties and make it uh, impossible for party leaderships to govern in the interests of the country more broadly. When you say we see demands from the people for this, is it really the people or is it other sort of political actors who are making these demands? It's for the most part, it's, it is um, it, the claim that the people should have more control is a claim made by political activists uh, who are essentially mobilizing that argument in order to get more control for themselves. So wh what you find is, um, say in Britain, um, the Labour Party, they have introduced, uh, the, the leadership of political parties in Britain used to be determined by the parliamentary parties. Um, we now have a system in the Labour Party where the membership elects the leader. Uh, the member, anybody can become a member of the Labour Party by paying three pounds. Um, and so the people who join and become members are actually way to the left, not only of your typical Labour voter, but of your typical British voter. So they will elect Jeremy Corbyn, who's a card-carrying Marxist leader of the Labour Party. The Parliamentary Labour Party had a vote of no confidence in him by 162 to 50, or to 162 to 30, actually. Uh, but then the membership re-elected Corbyn by 62%. So there you have a situation, if, if Labour now comes into government, which is quite possible because Tories have their own problems, um, you would have a situation where the most Labour MPs couldn't possibly support Corbyn's program and get re-elected in their constituencies. So what would you would get would be what Americans call gridlock. So uh, it's an export of uh, one of the less attractive features of the American system. <laughs> um, but this is an example where um, decentralizing control in the name of the people uh, actually produces political sclerosis. Yeah. But your, your example in your work of moving towards referenda mm -hmm. is actually internal to the party now trying to sort of circumvent its own membership and, and, and sort of take, take issues to the people, right? So, so referenda are, produce a, a different variant of the problem, but particularly since you're interested in local government, for example, in 1970 eight in uh, California, there was a, the anti-tax movement, again, intense activists who care about ta cutting taxes, uh, put, put on the California ballot something called Proposition 13. Proposition 13 limits taxation in California, property taxes, um, to 1% of the assessed value of the property. So these are people whose intense agenda is for cutting taxes. And indeed, if you ask Americans generally, do you want a tax cut, 70% will say yes to any tax cut. However, if you say, would you like a tax cut if that means um, getting rid of prescription drug benefits for seniors, a majority will say no, uh, because then they're being forced to discount their preference for a tax cut by their preference for prescription drug benefits for seniors. So what happened in, in California was um, the the 
the Proposition 13 passed overwhelmingly, two-thirds vote, because people were just being asked about a tax cut. Um, but what is funded out of property taxes in, in the U.S. is a lot of local government mm -hmm. services, schools, uh, and so of course these all then went into precipitous decline and you have essentially California local government in a permanent state of semi-bankruptcy and that then has knock-on effect. So many towns in California now and municipalities, the only development they will allow is uh, condominium systems that that provide much of their own local government, um, whether it's garbage pickup or security or so on, because the towns are uh, so so living on the edge of bankruptcy. Um, the schools system has massively declined in California because they're funded out of local property taxes. So this is a you know, a textbook example of, of the kind of pathologies that we're discussing. But why doesn't competition sort of kick in at that point, right? So I would be rather rather pay more taxes to live in an area where, you know, security is better and schools are better, et cetera, than, than in an area where that's not the case. So you can get huge inequalities, but you should still have places where that's the case. Well, the reason competition doesn't kick in is that the main instrument of competition has been um, uh, decimated by the, the extraction of these issues from party platforms. What parties do is bundle issues. So what parties do is, is exactly the kind of discounting that I was just talking about. Um, if you ask voters one, one issue at a time, what happens is the people who have intense preferences about that issue show up and vote and mobilize and spend money and run ad campaigns. Mm -hmm. And um, so that it's the, the tax cutting crowd shows up. You know, maybe they don't care about local government services or the schools, but um, they probably care about police services or something else. Um, but this is, you know, it's partly it's partly who turns out and who cares intensely. It's partly what we know about the the literature in behavioral psychology from Kahneman and Tversky that the way you frame an issue, if you're just talking about do you want a tax cut, people don't think about. They don't discount it by what are the costs of this tax cut actually going to be down the line. Um, so, so to go back to the UK, this is how you can get a situation where if you ask the British voters, do you want to do you want Brexit? Fifty-two to will to forty-nine will say yes, um, but those that same electorate the following year re-elects to Parliament two parties, Labour and the Conservatives, that are overwhelmingly in favour of Remain. Seems paradoxical, but it's not paradoxical at all because the difference is that when considering, you know, do we want our autonomy taken by faceless European bureaucrats, they say, no, no. we don't, you know, but uh, what what they aren't thinking about is the, the knock-on effects of that, for instance, that Britain is going to be trading in a customs union now where they have absolutely no control of the rules of the customs union because they won't be members of the EU anymore. The, the politicians know that, so the politicians uh, know um, that if uh, 
if you have Brexit, it's actually going to be worse for most of their constituents because uh, what really matters to them is job loss. What really matters to them is uh, income stagnation. What really matters to them is um, uh, a whole variety of things that are going to be harmed by leaving Europe. So they're worried about getting reelected uh, later on in their own constituencies, and so they are doing the discounting that's not being done. So it's just like saying to a child, "Would you like eat as much candy as you want, and don't think about the stomach aches you're going to get later?" That's what referendum politics invites. Okay, referendum politics is slightly different than just the questions about decentralization, right? So we can also see decentralization and sort of more, you know, kind of power at the local level independent of whether or not that's being done through referenda or through other through other means right so it, what's your what's your perspective on the sort of the pushes towards decentralization that has also been um, in the last couple of decades well what what's what's good for for decentralization and local politics is still the provision of programmatic local goods as opposed to corrupt lo local goods. So if you don't have political competition between two parties proposing different programs, you, you, what, what's given out locally is not likely to uh, actually be public goods. So if you look at, for instance, in South Africa where you have a single party single dominant party, there are always very high levels of corruption in those systems um, because there's no competition. And the way the party remains dominant is simply by side payments or clientless payments to whoever needs to be paid off to keep them in power. So single party dominant democracies are always very corrupt, whether it's South Africa or the PRI in Mexico or the Congress Party in India for for decades or, or what you see in Russia today. Um, so money gets sent to local communities, but in ways that are essentially corrupt and just um, essentially private payments to individual groups or firms. If you, if you want um, local public goods, uh, you need to have political competition between parties that are doing the, the kind of bundling that I've been talking about and thinking about the provision of local services, of local education, uh, and so on. So I think that um, if you want programmatic policies to come out of the political process, you need, you need to have parties that are competing to provide those things. So the the notion of parties in your in in your perspective is that it's about the ability to sort of bundle, make trade-offs, and present voters with essentially competing sort of competing policy packages. Yeah. Right. Um, you can imagine a world in which, and this is a, a world that exists in many cases, where the allocation is say algorithmic. Right, so the allocation of resources from the center to the local areas is algorithmic, and at the local area, at local level, they then, you know, we still have this question about how resources get used. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily that it's a, a two-party system mm -hmm. centrally. It's it's a question about the competition locally. Right? Mm -hmm. um, would you would your argument transfer to that? Is is the notion that at the local level you need to have at least, and, and, and ideally not more than two competing um, local parties? Because um, we, we don't often get that. That's why I'm asking. Well, the, 
Yeah, so you, you don't typically get two competing local parties, but you, you it's partly what you know whether where is the revenue raised. Um, if the revenue is centrally raised, then you're going to have competing central parties that are going to be allocating funds to local government. That's yeah. ten, what tends to happen in a country like the UK. In a country like the US with strong federalism, uh, you do have competition at the local level, but it often doesn't mirror the national political competition. So you, all of that's very context dependent. Um, what I would say is that if you look at um, local government provision or funds that are being provided for local government, again, if you, if you, if you have revenue raising at the local level, you're going to get a lot of the, the pathologies. You see, you see this in, especially in the East Coast of the United States, where you have referendums on the town budgets, and it produces um, often a decline in the provision of public services. So for example, um, in a, a lot of the small towns in New England, um, near Yale University where I work, um, we had white flight to the suburban towns mm -hmm. like Guilford and Madison and so forth. They, they have this old New England idea of direct democracy. They have referendums on the town budget. But what happened was people moved there for the cheap suburban schools in the 1970s and 80s. Then as their children left and the towns began to gray and the people didn't have kids in the school anymore, they started voting down the town budgets because um, they wanted lower taxes. Um, of course not, again, because of the framing effects, realizing that this would have other knock-on effects like worse provision of local services, uh, declining property values, eventually such declines in the schools that the people who could afford to would take their kids out of the schools and send them to private schools. And so you get, again, a deterioration of local services. So uh, if you have local revenue raising, uh, it's going to generate a lot of that kind of politics. So what's the path forward? What do you see as the solution to the, so, to the decline? So um, we don't believe in tabula rasa and starting over. Um, political philosophers who talk in that way often call to mind the, the story about the fellow who went up to a farmer in Donegal and said, how do I get to Dublin? And the answer came back, well, I wouldn't start from here, Sonny. <laughs> um, so we think you should start from where you are. We're all in uh, the Donegal that we happen to be in. But generally speaking, um, pushing for more decentralization is going to make problems worse, and pushing for unbundling of policies is going to make things worse. So what, what you want to think about in any given situation is what will strengthen parties and what will reduce the number of parties. We haven't talked about that at great length, but the more parties you have, the more negotiations you have to form governments. Mm -hmm. And it might look more representative because you have many more groups represented in the legislature, but it, there's a trade-off between that and accountable governments because what has to be given away to make the deals to put together the coalitions um, makes it possible for politicians then to avoid responsibility for what the government actually does. So there's a trade-off between representativeness of the legislature and accountable government. 
and we want to put the thumb on the scale for accountable governments because at the end of the day it's what governments do or don't do that matters most to voters and if if governments can't deliver goods you're going to see um, angry voters and desperate voters and desperate voters do desperate things they're going to become more polarized they're going to be um, mobilized through exclusionary identity politics and you're going to get a lot of the kind of uh, ugly populism that we've seen rearing its head in in the last decade. So we talked earlier about the sort of who would be in favor of referenda, who's in favor of decentralization and the forces that are on the side of what you see as the problem. Mm -hmm. Who are the allies for the kinds of of sort of reforms or or policies that, that you were Well, that's often dynamic. So, um, it and the reforms are often dreamed up by well-intentioned, naive people. Uh, In the U.S., we got primaries from the progressives in the in the beginning of the 20th century, who who thought they were, you know, empowering the people. Um, But of course, uh, who who does best out of primaries? Well-organized, well-funded, intense groups. So. The Tea Parties take over the Republican Party. The instrument of that was the primary system. Um, so a lot of the time, the allies for for decentralizing reform um, are, are are misguided um, um, people who think that they're enhancing democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, our agenda is to try and convince those people to see that we should not be doing those things. And it, it can be an apple of battle. I'll just give you one, uh, one example from the U.S. Uh, there's been this, since the 2016 election in the U.S., there's been this clambering of, to get rid of the Electoral College because Hillary got three million more votes than, uh, than, than uh, Donald Trump. Um, and they say it's unfair, it's undemocratic, it's not reflecting the will of the people, and so on. But again, they're not thinking about the system as a whole, because what would happen is if you got rid of the Electoral College is you would just enhance the independent legitimacy of the president. You'd make the U.S. more like a Latin American system. Um, but that, in turn, further weakens the parties in the legislature. We're, we're arguing for strengthening the parties in the legislature. So for the U.S., far rather than that, they should think about going back to the system which prevailed in the 19th century. Until 1828, the, the congressional parties picked their candidates for the president, so made the U.S. system function more like a parliamentary system where everybody's on the same team. That's our conception of a well-functioning party, when everybody's on the same team, pulling in the same direction, trying to enact the same policies so that voters can then hold them accountable for the policies that are enacted. Um, What happened in the U.S. in 1824, Andrew Jackson uh, didn't get selected, and John Quincy Adams did get picked by uh, the so-called Democratic-Republicans, what would eventually become the Democratic Party. And he was he was furious because he had more um, popular support, and uh, actually also more support in the electoral college. But he didn't have enough, uh, so he mounted the first populist assault on the party system. And in 1828, we got our first convention. 
uh, a convention, so uh, again, intended, attended by intense activists, they're not people who are representative of voters. And that's how Andrew Jackson became president in 1828. Um, and so, you know, then we're, we're, it was the beginning of the decentralization of the control of American political parties. Um, so that rather than rather than going down the, the Latin American path, which further weakens the parties in the legislature, it would be much better to say that if the primaries are inconclusive, I don't think you can get rid of primaries in the U.S. anymore, but if the primaries are inconclusive, then the congressional parties should pick the candidates. Likewise, in, in, the, uh, in Congress, the pri primary turnout is, uh, you know, Adriana Ocasio-Cortez won the 14th district in New York in an 11% turnout. Jim Jordan won the 4th district in Ohio in a 15% turnout. And so these are the people on the fringes of the parties who are now determining who goes to Congress. And it's not surprising when they get there, either they compromise, in which case the people who elected them accuse them of selling out, right. or they don't, in which case you get gridlock. But either way, the voters of are alienated and angry. We've, we are we are creating a system when it's impossible for politicians to govern, and then blaming them for failing to govern. So when you say primaries are inconclusive, is that is are you thinking of a threshold for turnout in primary elections, so, or what yeah. would that look so like? So the thing about primaries is, um, as I said, primaries have been around for 120 years, but what's changed in the U.S. is is the vast majority of seats are now safe seats. So the primaries are the only thing that matter. And if you have very low turnout in primaries, you get the extremes of the parties being empowered. Mm -hmm. So the argument in our book is if, if the turnout in primaries falls below, say, 75% of the turnout in that district in the previous general election, then the congressional party leadership should be able to pick the candidate. And likewise, with presidential candidates, if the turnout, Donald Trump actually got selected as the Republican candidate by less than 5% of the U.S. electorate because of the low turnout in the Republican primaries. Um, again, we, our argument would be in, in, the, in the eventuality that you have a candidate picked by in such low turnout, go back to the pre-Jacksonian uh, system where the congressional parties would be able to pick the candidate and they wouldn't have picked Trump. So going back to your point that we can only sort of start from where we are. Yeah. We're already in a position where um, people have lost a lot of faith in the parties yeah. on the one hand and and in a position where the sort of the notion of okay I'm raising my funds from small donations via the internet and there's a whole new yeah. set of technologies that are out there. Um, how realistic is it to think that the part like reviving the parties is the way to solve the problem or are there other pro other solutions that we should be thinking about given the already sort of low confidence in them? Well people are always looking for the latest gimmick to fix it so the one thought was well um, you know once we once you can have crowdsource funding you know the idea that if the few big corporate fat cats are going to shape yeah. politics can be undone um, so that turns out to be an illusion as well. If you look at the research, it shows that even small donors, the people who any the people who give money 
um, outside their own district tend to be on the very far extremes of the parties. So the crowdsource funding is not reducing the disproportionate giving from the extremes of parties. Mm. So it's again, it sounds good, but you got to look at what who actually is going to be motivated. You know, a voter in New England who's actually going to be motivated to put money into a Texas race is going to be somebody on the extreme of a party. Um, so crowdsource funding is not the answer. Um, and um, we think that uh, one way or another, um, first of all, stop the bloodletting, stop weakening parties even further than we have already. And then secondly, start to look for things that can, can at the margin push in the right direction. So the other big way you can start to have an impact, again, this varies from country to country, but in the US, um, redistricting is, is one of the areas where you can actually have an impact because um, what you really want for, for healthy political competition as opposed to political competition that's just giving out um, benefits to, to, to narrow yes, yeah. groups is um, constituencies that look more or less like one another. Um, so that means you really want constituencies that have urban voters, rural voters, and suburban voters in them so that the politicians running to get elected in those districts have to discount the preferences of urban, rural, and suburban voters by one another uh, and think about what kind of policies would be best for a country in which there are urban voters, rural voters, and suburban voters. Whereas um, if you have, you know, blue cities and red states and you have, you have uh, a a highly differentiated mm -hmm. system, you're not going to get the healthy political competition. So about a, you know, the U.S. has a system where state legislatures draw the districts, which and then they, whoever's controlling the state legislature, tries to protect their party. Or if it's divided party control, they do deals and they carve up the states. Both of those things are bad. So about a third of the states have now gone to independent commissions, which is good. Um, but the trouble is a lot of them aren't really independent. They're just bipartisan. Uh, and so again, they make deals and carve up the states. Or when they're genuinely independent, they don't give them the right algorithms to work with. So they say, you know, don't break up communities. We think you should break up communities because you want uh, as I said, you want a mix of urban, rural, and suburban voters in every district. So um, pushing for those kinds of changes in redistricting, our threshold thing about turnout uh, in primary elections, these are, are reforms that at the margin can push in the right direction and would start to strengthen political parties. In different countries, we call for different reforms in our book. Mm -hmm. in we haven't talked about PR systems today. Um, we have a, a variety of suggestions in PR systems about what can make them function better. Get rid of open list, go back to closed list. Um, again, uh, get away from direct election of leaders. Have uh, the party backbenchers pick the leaders. Um, and reforms of that general sort. Generally, any reform that strengthens parties is better than one that weakens parties, and any reform that reduces the number of parties is better than a reform that leads to fragmentation. So just one more question about ways in which we can sort of mm -hmm. think through solutions. Um, 
Is there a reason to keep thinking about districts as geographically bounded in the same way that we've always developed? I mean, it made sense when we were talking about you know, riding through an area on horseback and campaigning. And in some ways, again, if you think about technological changes and what's possible these days, we don't have to do that. So is there, is there when we're talking about you know, kind of national, mm-hmm. national leaders, is there a reason why we can't have you know, a handful of constituents in Texas and a handful in Wisconsin and a handful in Michigan if we're, um, if we're taking the U.S. example? We wouldn't have any objection to that. And in fact, you know, if you think about a, a country like the U.K., part of the problem in the U.K. that has produced the demand for Brexit is that all of the wealth and, and, and economic activity and um, dynamism for decades has been in London. And so you have a situation where the north of England has a per capita income below Mississippi. Um, so it's not surprising you've got, the, that's where the Brexit voters came from. Um, so, you know, in principle, it would be good for a sliver of London to be in every single constituency in the UK. Um, we would have no objection to that. But again, in the realm of political realism, uh, People are so strongly attached to the idea that of geographically based constituencies that uh, we don't think it's really realistic. So what what would help it, though? The UK has very small constituencies. They they they're you know a third of the size of the constituencies in Germany. Germany has a mixed system. They part of it is is single member districts. They have two hundred and ninety nine. Mm-hmm. They're three times as big as the British constituencies, so they're more diverse. The U.S. actually in Congress has districts that are ten times the size of British ones on average. So Britain would do much better to reduce the number of seats in Parliament and have more urban, more urban and uh, suburban voters in the districts, at least move in that direction. Uh, Unfortunately, the incumbents never want to change things. So the Boundary Commission in the UK of a couple of years ago actually recommended going from 650 to 600, which is a pretty modest reduction. We think that needs to be much, you know, maybe to like 300. Uh, and even that was rejected by Parliament. So because people don't want to lose their seats. Right. Which is, of course, the difficulty of, the, of yeah. sort of the reform process most more yeah. more directly right is that all of this suggests that people would on the one hand that 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 people would have their own positions at stake um, on the other hand the the interesting thing about what you're suggesting is politicians should like it because it does suggest moving back to the days when they could have arguably more power yeah and you know just one final point on that um, politicians prefer the status quo but often it's it's a status quo that they themselves hate so in the U.S., for example, um, everyone complains about the role of money in politics, and it's all, but everybody focuses on the supply side. These you know big lobby groups and well-heeled yeah. suppliers of money. Nobody looks at the demand side. Uh, why is there so demand for money? It's because uh, the parties are so weak. All campaigning is retail campaigning, and that's the most expensive form of campaigning. If if you put in place the sort of reforms we're talking about, um, elections would become much cheaper and politicians wouldn't have to spend all their time raising money. Well, they hate raising money. Um, So actually, 
you know, hope springs eternal, that you could start to get, if you could get people to think about the system as a whole and not just fight the last war or just look one, at one reform at a time or one issue at a time, but think about the whole, how the whole system, it's a system. So anything you do to one part of it f affects all the other parts of it. And we need to get people to see that and think about it as a system as a whole. Um, actually, American politicians would be much better off in a system in which parties were stronger and they didn't have to cater to all of these local interests and promise to bring stuff back to the districts and build bridges to nowhere and all this sort of thing. Um, the illusion of responsiveness to voters, that's really just paying off um, intense groups. They wouldn't have to do that. They would actually be better off. We have to get them to see that. Thank you. You're Thank you so much for joining us.